Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we've got a full house for today's show. Uh, we are really excited to have back Tori Slatten, our Supreme Court whisperer. Tori, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be here. And uh, Luke Boggs, back as always. Luke, welcome back. It's glad to be back. Glad to, glad to be here. And Megan Payne, also back. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. All right, so on this week's show, we're going to discuss some new polling from the University of Georgia and the AJC showing a tied race for governor between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. We'll also recap the confirmation hearings last week where uh, Republicans are working to place Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Um, these these hearings in this nomination are likely to, to reshape the court in really important ways. So lots of important stuff to discuss there. Um, Next, the New York Times published an anonymous op-ed from a senior administration official in the Trump administration detailing the president's recklessness and efforts by officials across the administration to stop some of the president's worst impulses. And amidst all of this, former President Barack Obama returned to the campaign trail last week. We'll discuss whether Democrats should be excited to see Obama on the stump and whether he's overstepping precedents set by other retired presidents. So full show for us today. But let's get it started with this polling. Um, So at the end of last week, University of Georgia and the AJC released a poll the first uh, major poll of the general election between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. And that poll showed that both Kemp and Abrams are basically statistically tied in that race. Um, It also showed that Donald Trump remains relatively unpopular in Georgia. He's about nine points underwater in that poll. Luke, let's start with you. What what did you think of this poll and, and Stacey Abrams' position in it? Well, first, I would say I am glad to see that uh, our alma mater in my current school is uh, now in the game of polling. It's been very exciting. Uh, So happy to see UGA is doing that. But I think the most important thing to take from this is, uh, I mean, almost nothing, because I feel like we haven't learned anything from this just because of the fact that we always knew this was going to be a close race. And so seeing a result that is close is unsurprising. And then also for every Georgia campaign that I've really paid attention to when we are about this far out in September, especially in the midterm elections, they were already like they were almost always tied or very close to tied. Uh, so it's definitely a good thing for Abrams that um, this thing is tied up, uh, and it would be a really bad thing if Kemp was leaguing right now. But Jason Carter and Nathan Deal were also tied at about this time uh, during the, the race in 2014. So I think, honestly, it, it tells us very little. Yeah, there were some interesting little tidbits out of this poll that I thought were interesting beyond the top line numbers. I actually sort of feel like Abrams may wanted to have been in the lead a little bit. Um, She released an internal poll showing her up nine points earlier. Um, But this was while the Republican primary was wrapping up. And I don't think at that point either Casey Cagle or Brian Kemp had good favorability among most voters, uh, because that primary was pretty ugly. But some of the little things that I noticed out of sort of the issue focus of these polls, 
similar to what we talked about last week about sort of defining the middle of the electorate. In this poll, the three top issues for all voters were the economy and jobs as number one, healthcare as number two, and public education as number three. Uh, but on two of these issues, uh, women rated them higher than men. Uh, healthcare, it was a pretty significant pretty significantly more important issue to women than men, and twice as many women than men rated public education as their most important issue. Um, and another issue that was interesting was basically a value-free statement on gun laws. Are gun laws in and of themselves important to you as a voter? And I thought it was surprising that more women than men said that gun laws were their most important issue. It's still a relatively small number among all voters, but I think that gives a little bit of an indication that where voters lean as a whole on gun legislation may be more favorable to Abrams than to Kemp's view on that. Um, But otherwise, yeah, I I think that we know that this is going to be a competitive race out of this poll, and we don't know much else. um, But we do know, I think, that this poll shows that a good ground game for Stacey Abrams could put her over the top. I think the thing that you're noticing with the gun laws is, has a lot to do with the women's movement in general. You know, there's Women's March in Washington, and then from that has spun out all kinds of women's groups. I know I can name three off the top of my head just in the Atlanta area alone. And one of the major focuses of these groups has been um, guns at schools. And, um, you know, because a lot of these women also have children. And so I think that that's part of the reason for the uptick. Yeah. Last thing I'll say on this poll as well is I think this is another sign, a long series of signs that we've had that Abrams will need to reshape the electorate if she is going to win, uh, because typically undecideds in Georgia break to the Republican Party. And I will be somewhat surprised if uh, the undecideds in this poll don't mostly end up vo- becoming Kemp voters if they're not already deep down Kemp voters. So if Abrams is going to win this thing, her whole strategy of getting the uh, occasional voter to be a reliable midterm voter, I think, uh, is going to be very important for her. So we'll leave that polling there for now, um, but it, it definitely foreshadows a competitive race this fall. And let's dive into our first major topic. Um, so last week, uh, Tuesday through Friday, uh, Brett Kavanaugh was on the Hill testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee as a part of Republican efforts to put him on the Supreme Court. Um, we are very excited to have Tory back, particularly for this topic. Um, so let's start with sort of everybody's major takeaways from the testimony last week. What kind of stood out to you from what Brett Kavanaugh had to say to the Senate Judiciary Committee? Well, I mean, taking kind of the step out from what he actually said in the hearings was just the energy on the Hill this week was crazy. Um, I went there to like cover the protests that were happening and they were, it was almost hard to like cover all the different groups that were there and what they were all trying to represent. Um, I also think the fact that it started off with basically all the Democratic senators like coming forth and um, before really um, uh, before the hearings even started, they were already like voicing opposition and uh, trying to call for different procedural procedural uh, ways to stall. So it was just kind of like a circus. It was crazy. Um, Overall, I think Kavanaugh did pretty well 
he didn't answer a lot, which is to be expected. That's kind of been the norm. Um, most of his answers were, I don't entertain hypotheticals. Uh, but, you know, that's not out of the realm of what's been a recent trend in Supreme Court hearings. What do you think, Luke? So I think the biggest takeaway that I have from Brett Kavanaugh is that there is two is two major takeaways. One, Brett Kavanaugh is not a judge that represents the middle of America or the average American. He represents the the far right beliefs in America. And in that sense, he's a very typical judge of that ilk in the sense that he represents the things that a lot of people on the far right want to see from judges in America. So that's thing one. And thing two is he's just not that impressive to me. Like I've encountered a lot of judges. I've encountered, I've listened to a lot of Supreme court nominations. I've listened to and read a lot of opinions from Supreme court justices. And while he's not completely incompetent or, you know, unaware of what he's doing up there, it's just like, he's just not someone I would be like, yeah, like there's so many judges in the country. Brett Kavanaugh is at the top of my list of someone who qualification wise, I would want on the Supreme Court. Those are my big two takeaways, uh, mostly based in just how he answered this. I mean, I would say Gorsuch did significantly better in his hearings. I, of course, don't agree with Gorsuch on his policies, but as far as like handling questions and being prepared and seeming like he would have something intellectually to contribute to the court, um, I, I think uh, he did a better job of showing that off than Kavanaugh did. Whereas Kavanaugh, you know, spent most of his career as a party hack. And I think deep down that's, that's really who he is. And now he just is a party hack that happens to be a judge. Yeah. I, I agree with you, Luke. <laughs> wow. <Surprise. laughs> yeah, We're going to agree on the legal precedent. Um, yeah. yeah. I would say that he's not quite a Thomas. Um, cause he's, he does have subst- substance to him, but nobody, he's quite far a from Thomas. a Scalia. Nobody, nobody's quite that bad, but he is uh, really far away from being a Scalia. He had, none of his writings really stand out to me as like particularly like groundbreaking, and uh, even the cases that he um, set precedent on, I just wasn't that impressed with. Yeah, I would agree. Um, one thing that we were talking about offline that I think this would be a good moment to do. Uh, plenty of other political programs have focused on what Kavanaugh means for Roe. I think it's pretty clearly established that Kavanaugh is a threat to Roe, but I don't think people have explained the mechanism in which he is a threat to Roe. And so I think that would be a a fun conversation for us to have and uh, base that somewhat on the language uh, that he used in the hearing. And so I will ask for you, I will ask to you, Tori, even though I know the answer to this, so Kavanaugh, like when he was talking about Roe, he said a lot of language to, you know, that sounds like he thinks Roe versus Wade is a salt, you know, is is a precedent in that he it is, uh, quote, settled as a precedent of the Supreme Court and it deserves respect from judges. He repeatedly, every time he was asked, I heard him use the phrase, it's settled law. And he also uh, brought up uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in that uh, that ruling reaffirmed Rose ruling and was so, you know, precedent on precedent. So if he's saying all these things, why and how is Roe in danger? All right. Yeah, let's get into it. Um, So if anyone's on my Facebook, I definitely wrote a very lengthy post about this the other day. Um, I don't 
really have a lot of, um, I don't want to say respect. I just don't put a lot of weight behind people when they say, oh, it's settled law, it's precedent. Because the court over and over again has overturned precedent. Roe versus Wade is thoroughly settled, as he made it a point to say uh, multiple times. But that doesn't mean that abortion is safe. Um, I think what's likely to happen, especially with the right court, is that late-term abortions will... um, are, are definitely in danger, and I think a lot of uh, the procedural issues around abortions will probably make it impossible for women in countries or in states like Texas uh, to be able to obtain an abortion on a practical level. Uh, so even though he has said that it's settled law, settled law has been overturned in the past. And yeah, I think we mentioned that we wanted to go over the procedural of how uh, those cases go up to the court. Megan mentioned earlier, you know, like you, the court can't just like look at an issue and be like, should we revisit Roe versus Wade? Um, there has to be a case that makes its way through the lower courts and um, the Supreme Court has to basically uh, grant cert and say that they will hear a case. Um, the first case that goes up probably isn't going to be one that overturns Roe versus Wade. It'll be strategically picked out by uh, right wing uh, conservative organizations and in uh, so and they'll pick out a case specifically probably to limit abortion before they would go to overturn it it'll make its way through the lower court it can be um, basically any lower court but it'll probably make its way through the circuit courts first um, that's kind of the highest one one step removed from the supreme court and so And there's constantly these cases that are being brought forth in the really red states. They basically have these like every single year they go up. Um, They're not always granted cert, but I think with a conservative court, I think that's in danger. I have a question. First of all, thank you for answering the question that I asked offline, because I know it's something we visited before. And it's just something that, you know, for those of us who are not legal professionals, it gets a little confusing. When you say it has to come from a lower court, do you mean a lower appellate court or can it be a case that hasn't been heard yet? It can come from any lower court. So it can come from like there's state courts, there's federal courts. Within those, there are different kinds of courts. And then the appellate courts are the circuit courts on the federal level. Gotcha. Um, And so it, it can come from a practical level. Most cases from the Supreme Court come from an appellate court like the circuit courts or like a Supreme Court from a state. Um, but it can, I mean, technically they can grant cert from a lower court. It just doesn't happen very often because they feel like it hasn't been fully adjudicated through the system yet. And for a case this big, they probably wouldn't do it. And I think it's it's really important to uh, hit on one thing that you mentioned, Tori, which is there are conservative groups that are really, really good at this. Like they are good at finding sympathetic cases that hit the legal issues that they want to articulating it and arguing it in a way that is interesting to the Supreme Court and trying to push it up to them. And they're basically constantly doing it. So it's one of those things that if Kavanaugh has the will uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade with the, you know, five other, uh, five justices total rather, uh, that want to do it on the court, then they'll be able to do it. Um, and just because, um, something is considered precedent now, it is not hard or unnatural for that precedent to be turned over and the Supreme Court's overturning precedent all the time. Uh, sometimes, uh, for, you know, good reasons, uh, like overturning the Dred Scott case or, uh, 
Kamachi versus Ferguson. Yeah, separate but equal. That's what I always think about. Yeah, yeah, those are always good. But we just, uh, yeah, and sometimes you know, even more recently, they just overturned the Korematsu decision. I think with one of the Trump travel ban decisions. I think. Um, Yeah, only like fifty years too late. But yeah, (laughs) and so it's just like overturning precedent requires five votes. That's it. So no matter how solid of a precedent something is if you're on the supreme court and you get five justices that say oh don't like that pressing anymore then it, then it's gone now obviously uh you should and most judges would advocate that you uh should not go out of your way to overturn precedent and that you should probably do it with more than five justices but uh i doubt with the court sitting as it is now with the people who are on it i i doubt the five conservative justices would would feel that way so why Roberts did- might step up. We never know. Anyway, go ahead, Megan. <laughs> Sorry. So again, another non-legal professional question or question for a legal professional from a non-legal professional. When we're referring to cases and we say things like, oh, well, a precedent has been set, why does that seem to hold so much weight outside of the legal community when it's still – it seems very easy to just overturn a precedent as you guys were just talking about? Do you guys know – was it previously harder? Is it just a mis- um, misconstrued notion? I mean, the whole idea behind the way our legal system is set up is like there is one like inherent legal truth in each case. Like we're always trying to find it. And so like you're supposed to abide by like decisions of like the past. Like that's the idea behind the Supreme Court unless it's absolutely necessary. And you're like that that court definitely got it wrong. So, I mean, it is, like, ingrained in the legal system. That's one of the first things you're taught is stare decisis. You respect the court above you. You respect the court before you. Just on a practical level, you can't have that all the time, and you shouldn't have that all the time. And so, I don't know. I When Trump was elected, I remember telling everyone, I was like, Roe is safe. This is, it's going to be okay. Like, don't worry. This is the first time um, watching it actually happen that I, I'm scared. Well, and lower courts are bound to hold by precedent aren't they isn't the supreme court has more freedom to depart from precedent in a way that lower courts can't so if you're in a lower court in the 11th circuit you're bound by the decisions of the 11th circuit and like the supreme court Mm -hmm. and so um which is a lot of times the supreme court will take like what's called a circuit split when two circuits have ruled a different way and like lower courts are bound by the courts above them And they're supposed to be bound by the courts before them, but the Supreme Court isn't really beholden to anyone except its past, and they're they're allowed to overturn their past. Yeah, and to really just, like, drive it home, like, every single circuit court in the country could, you know, with a unanimous vote, say, we believe this thing, and this is how we think it should be handled, and then if that case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, nah, we don't think so, then they all have to follow that, no matter, you know, there's no way that you can argue with the Supreme Court judicially on that front. Um, And as far as like it getting easier or harder, it hasn't really gotten easier or harder. It's just, it's one of those things that we're in a very political time and the court is very politicized. And so that's why uh, it might seem like there's a lot of uh, precedents that are getting overturned uh, recently. There's no like uh, procedural thing that has made it more difficult. It's just, there's sort of been a, a, a balance on the court of people who believed that Roe was uh, precedent and actually solid and wanted to keep it that way. The other thing too, that makes this complicated in the language of it is the court very like 
rarely ever writes their opinions or expresses things in a way as if a new right was created or an old right was taken away. They basically write things in this very weird language that only lawyers could come up with, which is like, this right has always existed and previous courts were kind of off by not realizing that this is how it is and the <laughs> law has always been this way and the Constitution has always protected or not protected these things. We found the truth that's more truthier than that truth. Oh, like that's, yeah. We found greater truths. And truth isn't truth. <laughs> truth isn't truth. Yes. And then let's not get philosophical about truth because that'll lead us down a whole different rabbit hole. <laughs> but to, to get back into Roe a little bit, especially as it relates to this precedent conversation. So I don't know if y'all interpreted it this way, but I thought Kavanaugh's phrasing of describing Casey versus Planned Parenthood as precedent on precedent as it relates to Roe was an interesting way to describe it, because at least how I understand Casey is that it, it reaffirms the core right to an abortion, but it says that governments can regulate it so long as government regulation doesn't present an undue burden on women's access to abortion. And it seems like the route in which Kavanaugh can pretty easily start to chip away at Roe without doing a full overturn of the law is to just sort of redefine what undue burden means. And Vox pointed out that there's 13 cases in the lower courts right now that could come before the Supreme Court that could lead to some of this chipping away at Roe. This is similar. Some of these cases are similar to cases we've talked about in the past where there have been regulations on abortion clinics that have been designed more so to push them out of business as opposed to protecting women's health or safety. But a Kavanaugh-led court they can still honor the precedent of Roe and the precedent on precedent of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, but allow more burdensome regulations that they just claim are not an undue burden on a woman's right to access abortion. Do does that does that sound right to y'all? And part of this discussion as it relates to the politics of this was both Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins are two pro-choice women Republicans who at least seem to think or seem to signal that they would be uh, less interested in Kavanaugh and supporting him if if he was going to be a real threat to Roe. So does that description of precedent on precedent sound right to y'all? And do you have any sense at all of if it could move uh, move Collins or Murkowski to the no vote column? If, it, if it's going to move them, I haven't really seen them express that yet. Um, I, As much as I want to believe that they'll come through, I they haven't really given me any indication that they're going to vote no. And I think he's given them just enough assurances that they'll probably vote yes, um, even though I hate to say that. Um, but yeah, what you were saying, this is what I was saying earlier about I don't think the first case to go up in front of the Supreme Court will be to overturn Roe. I think it's way more likely that it'll be something to limit Roe, um, maybe in late term abortions or, you know, something procedural like um, closing down abortion clinics for just kind of ridiculous reasons, like the Texas case that came out a couple years ago. Um, so we'll I don't know. I, I'm not very hopeful on that. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think it will be chipped away before it's overturned if it's overturned. Yeah, I would thoroughly agree with that. Like, I think. And I think it's important to communicate this, too, because I feel like if we don't articulate what the threat is, then when it happens, people won't recognize what's happened. 
because uh, I would be very surprised within like the range of Trump's presidency. Like, let's say Kavanaugh gets on there, but the court stays the same after that for the rest of Trump's presidency. And let's even assume he gets a second term yeah, you know, for the real nightmare scenario. I would be very surprised that in that timeline that Roe versus Wade got completely overturned. That would be shocking to me. What I fully expect, and this is what Casey would support, is that uh, there could be a lot more procedural hurdles to abortion and it just be completely impractical to get an abortion while technically legal. Um, that's that's what I suspect would happen. And that would not be a stretch in the same way that overturning Roe versus Wade would be. You could be consistent with Roe versus Wade and Casey, but still make abortion significantly uh, more difficult in America. Especially because, and then I'll get off of this topic, but like the court really in both those cases specifically left out that there's a lot about abortion that they are choosing not to legislate or they're choosing not to rule on. Right. Um, They specifically said like in Roe, they were like, we we don't know about late term abortions. That should be something for the future courts. Um, And so and I mean, in case he was like an undue burden, what's a burden that'll be decided in future courts. So I think like the window is open for that. And I think, you know, once you start inching in that direction, it's going to be a lot easier to really to probably overturn it in the future. Another way in which Kavanaugh stands out from some of the other possible nominees that Trump could have picked is his views on presidential powers and presidential immunity in the face of investigations. In his hearings, Kavanaugh refused to say whether Trump, as a sitting president, could be subpoenaed by Mueller. He also declined to say whether Trump could escape legal jeopardy by pardoning himself or his associates, and he refused to say if he would recuse himself from cases involving President Trump. Um, on on this group of issues, what did y'all make of his responses and and really his refusal to answer any of these questions? I think he had a real opportunity to make everyone in America feel a lot better about it by just saying he'd recuse himself from any of these issues since he was appointed by the president while he was deeply embroiled in these issues in a way that like, I wouldn't even say Gorsuch would necessarily need to do um, because a lot of, uh, a lot of these legal jeopardy issues were not really at the forefront of any conversation uh, when he was nominated, whereas for Kavanaugh is the main political conversation, I would argue. Um, I, as someone who really enjoys administrative law, found Kavanaugh's discussions of it interesting because he, he very clearly, I think, wants to do something that people would not like in this current environment uh, with administrative law because uh, one, one of the uh, discussions that he brought up a lot was the Morrison case in dealing with at-will firing versus for good cause firing. And every time someone tried to tie him down on that issue, he would not really respond to the question because he kept just talking about the fact that the law that that case was about, the special counsel law is no longer a law and that had been uh you know congress had, had gone rid of it uh after a sunset provision and do you want to talk about like what and what the levels of officers are because i think it's important for people to understand the background of that case a little bit yeah do you want to or i mean i can what i understand you're the law student <laughs> like uh, you probably know more than me yeah um, well yeah i you can you can start it and then i can add anything 
Okay, so basically the case was deciding, can the president fire anyone in the executive branch? And the answer was no. Principal officers, he can. So obviously, if there's a cabinet member, that position's so important and it's so close to the president that if they have an inherent disagreement or the president thinks somebody else would be better for the job, he can fire him with basically without a reason. But for inferior officers, and that might, I always thought like when I was working for the government, like I was grateful for this rule. The president can't just be like, oh, I'm going to fire everyone in Homeland Security today because those are not principal officers. So um, what, do you, what do you have to add to that, Luke? Well, and just to provide even further clarification, uh, there's a third category of people who are just employees. Um, and basically, the, the most important thing is you have, you know, you have your principal officers, your inferior officers and employees and the inferior officers and principal officers have different requirements for how they're hired and fired. He and for this conversation, I believe Kavanaugh wants to change something about that, but he was very squirrely on what it would be. And why this is important is because uh, Robert Mueller is a inferior officer who is able to be hired and fired by a principal officer who is the attorney general of the United States, though that is currently uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, he has recused himself, so now it's with the deputy attorney general, General Rod Rosenstein. And, you know, the, the recurring question has been, does Trump have the ability to fire Mueller uh, at will, or do, have, does he have to fire him with good cause? That's, that question is somewhat unclear. And but right now it's a law stands Right, because the way I would interpret it is that he he cannot just fire Mueller, but he can hire and fire the person who has the ability to fire Mueller. Yes. So okay, yeah, that's as what, I understand it. <laughs> there seems uh, to be a lot of confusion around that, even kind of in the legal world. But that that's my interpretation of it. Yeah that that is that is the you know best known answer to that question at this moment. Um, but if. Yeah, if Kavanaugh has a different take on it, then that could change very drastically and have, um, I don't know, devastating effects on the investigation. So so how does that relate to, like, President Trump's decision whether or not that he could fire Robert Mueller? I mean, is the law still the same as it was in the 1970s during the Saturday Night Massacre, where Nixon had to fire several successive officials before somebody would fire the lead, I don't know if they were called a special counsel then, but the yes. the main person investigating um, the Nixon administra- administration. So if, if Kavanaugh's view is different, would that then potentially give legal room for Trump to fire Mueller without having to go through either the attorney general or deputy attorney general? You know, is, is that just mean that Trump is sort of a direct overseer of the special counsel? I mean, yes, yes and no. I'd be really interested to see how that case actually made it onto the court. Because in Morrison, like it was an officer suing basically the the president saying like, you can't fire me. And so, I mean, it would have to be like a really specific situation. But if Kavanaugh was to rule on it, then yeah, I think that the dynamics of that could change, which might lead to more clarity, some would argue. (laughs) Yeah, and, and and just just as like a preface, admin law is one of those things that the Supreme Court 
seem like if you ever read their opinions in admin law they seem to hate it and like they never want to deal with it because they and their rulings are really really inconsistent so if it sounds like we're going back and forth and every this whole conversation is blurry that's because i think that is also the opinion of the supreme court and that this is a really blurry area of law and they don't really understand or have a great interest in defining these things because their Each, role was never really defined. It, right. Even at, like in the Constitution, it was never like how much are they supposed to control the executive branch or decide, you know, on a practical level. Like, um, you know, and I don't want to get into Chevron and all that, but like there's so che- many things. Chevron's that- important, though. We do need to get <laughs> okay, Chevron. Uh, Chevron is in so much danger. <laughs> Chev- che- yeah, Kavanaugh doesn't like Chevron. Yeah. Well, let's, I let's, think Chevron's going to get overturned. Let's let's wrap on this point and, and then jump into Chevron. It it also seems like Kavanaugh has been um, even blurrier about how his own views in the past represent whether how he would rule on these questions uh, once he was on the court. Um, he issued what he now says were legislative recommendations that the Congress pass legislation keeping. Uh, giving legal immunity to the president while he is in office. So any sort of lawsuits, they could continue after the president leaves office, but the president wouldn't have to deal with those issues while he was in office. Um, He is now saying that those were recommendations to Congress, but that they did not represent his view of whether or not that was already something protected in the Constitution. So he seemed to leave room for himself to find the legislative recommendations he gave to Congress to find them by himself in his own legal rulings. Yeah, and two two just quick follow up things on that. It's re- the like the special counsel stuff is so blurry because we have the Nixon period, uh, which you know has clear rulings and precedent from. But then after. Nixon and uh, all the concern around how that was handled, Congress c- created uh, the special prosecutor's office, which uh, is what Kenneth Starr was. And due to Kenneth Starr running roughshod over the United States government and handling it the way that he did, uh, they Congress decided to not, you know, they decided to allow the sunset to, uh, expire for that law. And so basically we have one system for Nixon, we have a different system for Clinton, and now we're back to the Nixon system with uh, the Trump special counsel uh, situation. And so a lot of the legal cases involving special counsels come from the Clinton era when it was a different law with slightly different structures. And so that's creating a lot of blurriness. And then uh, the other thing that makes like Kavanaugh so hard to talk about in a lot of this is that a lot of the papers that we have for him was his time serving as lawyers for entities that had clear political goals in that he was like the lawyer for uh, in a George, the George W. Bush administration. He was part of Kenneth Starr's team. And so there's the real question, you know, be, because lawyers are supposed to advocate for their clients and promote the views of their clients and make good arguments for their clients. And so many of his papers come from that period rather than his period as a judge. And so it's really hard to know, like, if he was advocating for his client or if he's saying what his actual view is. Uh, I, yeah, you know. I think you can make the argument that it's problematic how political his past was generally, more so than a lot of other people who have been on the court before. So when I hear that, you know, the fact I think you have to take into account who he worked for, who he chose to work for um, and how that how those experiences would have shaped his views. 
I agree. <laughs> well, and this all could be less relevant if the president would just behave himself. But I, you know, he seems incapable of that. I don't think that's uh, going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's dive into some of the other half of this, the um, the Chevron part of this. And, and this seems particularly relevant in the fight over climate change and how much regulation the EPA is able to do. Um, and that, you know, the Chevron stuff, and I'm going to give it to y'all because I don't even fully understand this, but the Chevron stuff is really related to what agencies like the EPA can and can't do under broad legal authority. And and so can you tell us a little bit about that and how Kavanaugh's place on the court could potentially change those issues? I will I will give a very, very brief overview of Chevron because I don't want to bore your listeners with more legalese than we've already dived into. But basically, Congress cannot and should not legislate every single detail of every bill that they pass. And so they might pass a bill saying that they want the EPA to do something, but may not give specific steps about how that thing needs to be accomplished. And a lot of it is they're not experts in these fields, and they don't really know what needs to be done to get this thing accomplished. That's the way I see Chevron. And so basically, Chevron deference says when a law is passed that's vague, they're going to defer to the agency to decide how to implement it. Um, what level to implement it and like, you know, what is the best way because the agencies, the people working there are the experts and they have are going to have better knowledge than probably somebody in Congress unless there's like some superstar who legislated on a very specific thing. Um, so let the record show. Generally, I am pro Chevron. Um, it's a very controversial case because it can it does a lot of good, but it also does a lot of damage because if you get a really conservative administration who decides that none of the EPA um, none of the legislation at the EPA needs to be implemented to the full extent, then you could do a lot of damage that way. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really interesting to note the fact that Chevron deference was advocated for by the Reagan administration. This is something that conservatives really wanted. The court was getting really involved in agency decision making, and this was seen as a way for the court to kind of back off a little bit and let agencies do what agencies need to do. Um, and as I've previously mentioned and will never let die, the EPA, EPA administrator for that case, who uh, you know that the Reagan administration had advocating for them, was Ann Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch's mother, he just he just cannot let his mom's most <laughs> interesting political achievement stand. Neil has to get one on his mom. Don't know why. Um, well, in uh, another another quick demonstration of how small this world is, there was some review process for some of Kavanaugh's papers, and I can't remember which ones. But the judge that was asked to review whatever this was related to his papers was Merrick Garland. Yeah, it's a small world. Interesting, (laughs) maybe insulting to Merrick Garland. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which you know, just another uh, liberal rage uh, note is the fact that uh, (laughs) Brett Kavanaugh's chief judge is is Merrick Garland. And speaking of like having someone who's actually qualified and really is a accomplished jurist uh, being nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, why nominate a guy? 
uh, from a court when you could just nominate the chief justice from that court. But I, I digress. Uh, I am also very pro Chevron. Um, administrative agencies have a lot of really complicated stuff to handle, and it's just not practical to make Congress do it. And it makes a lot more sense for justices who are uh, pretty much entirely lawyers. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's 100% lawyers who don't really understand, you know, like just from training, do not understand this stuff as much as engineers or, you know, conservationists or whoever uh, is working in the agencies. And even in administrations like this one, I would much rather have those policy decisions made in the agencies rather than in courts. Uh, So I'm hoping that that's what happens, but it really does not seem like that's going to happen just because... I think that that, that's a battle we've lost already. Yeah, well... That was one of the few things he was, like, pretty... He he wasn't outspoken on anything, but I felt like it was pretty clear where he stood on this. Yeah, and the fact that Neil Gorsuch is is very strongly against it. Um, So I I think Chevron is is very much dead. That, That is the one thing I will say... Uh, to kind of really lay out how much that seems to be the case is the one thing that I, because uh, a lot of people in law school know that I'm a big admin law fan, and so people will just walk up to me and say, Chevron's dead, and I'll be like, I know. And so <laughs> just, so the fact that like almost everyone like, feels that while there's a lot more waffling uh for on many other issues i i think chevron is unfortunately dead but i will not be surprised if we end up coming back to it because it's one of those things that uh a lot of state courts have actually adopted very interestingly enough and in their uh cases state supreme courts will basically be like in in you know how we deal with our uh state level agencies we you know adopt the same mindset of like chevron so uh, on that front, it'll be interesting to see how states handle this. I, I don't see a practical alternative uh, that will be effective. But anyway, we, we, we've hit Chevron as hard as we can, probably. Yeah. yeah, that strikes me as making even more sense on the state level, knowing how few staff and resources state legislatures tend to have for the actual legislators. Um So leaving some of that authority to state agencies seems to make more sense. Let's, though, let's close on some of the politics of this. Um, So this was also the um, kind of the proving ground for 2020 hopefuls like Kamala Harris, Senator from California, and Cory Booker, Senator from New Jersey. Cory Booker, along with Maisie Hirono, Senator from Hawaii, released committee confidential documents during these proceedings. And there was some debate over how confidential these documents actually were. But uh, Cory Booker in his self-proclaimed I am Spartacus moment, uh, let out some emails related to Kavanaugh's views on affirmative action and and race-based policies. And I know Maisie Hirono released released some similar emails. Um, What did you make of those releases uh, particularly by Booker, uh, but also Maisie Hirono's uh, releases on issues important to Hawaiians and and potentially Alaskans. I actually like I watched the Cory Booker uh, monologue and I thought it was awesome. You know that a lot of people have criticized him that it was grandstanding and opportunistic. But I thought it was actually really cool to see him kind of stand up and just be like, no, this is what I believe. I think the American people have a right to these emails and I'm going to release them no matter what you say. I thought that that was oddly refreshing. But I don't know. We'll see how that actually plays in with his popularity, I guess. But 
I thought that from what I've seen of the emails, I thought that they weren't quite as exciting as I thought they were going to be. Um, a couple of them were pretty damaging or, you know, they struck me as like, oh, that's good to know. Uh, but there was like no like smoking gun that like you release the emails and now we see truly who Kavanaugh is. One thing that I want to say about Hirono that I found really interesting um, and it, she didn't this wasn't in the emails. This was just she brought up Kavanaugh's judicial record about the fact that he has not been very he has not been very kind to indigenous populations, especially in Hawaii. He specifically ruled that they're not that indigenous populations in Hawaii are not entitled to the same um, constitutional protections as indigenous as Native Americans on the mainland. And she pointed out that he has alluded similar things to uh, Native populations in Alaska. And she alluded to that because obviously she wants Murkowski to vote the other way. And she's trying to point out that there will be injustices um, against Native populations in Hawaii or in Alaska if he's put on the court. So I, I don't know. It was just an interesting strategy. And I I get what you're saying. I think everyone who's a 2020 hopeful kind of took this opportunity to um, make a statement and make some waves on Twitter. I mean, if I'm being honest, I would have. It seems like a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah, everybody's watching it. Yeah, I think the important thing to mention with this Booker thing uh, in the releasing of documents, while, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it does come off a little grandstandy. I think the more important thing is that it required the spotlight that he put on it because the Republicans are rushing through this nomination. There's a lot of paperwork on Kavanaugh that both Republicans and Democrats have requested to see that has not been released yet. And I mean, it requires uh, like it requires grandstanding. Like that's the only way you get people to pay attention to it because otherwise it's such a small thing that uh, people wouldn't notice it. And they were marking so many documents as committee confidential that, you know, like uh, Tory really you hit it on the head is the fact that like it was kind of boring and not really all that confidential in, in my sense. And, it, you know, it's not like this is someone trying to be White House counsel or some other you know, position that doesn't require as much scrutiny. Like this is a very big position. It's the Supreme Court. It's the most important legal position in the country. And so I think it requires a lot of things to be disclosed. And it just, they were going out of their way to just, you know, to keep confidential whatever they possibly could. And that, that was really frustrating to me. Um, I I have a question for y'all really fast because I was curious about this because when I, heard this story it made me think of like classified information i was like oh my gosh booker's in so much trouble and then i quickly read and learned like confidential and like committee confidential is a lot different than you know executive um who decides what's committee confidential do y'all know or what's that process i believe it was the president i believe i believe the white house requested things because i think what the process was because i listened to the hearing and gra- as as grassley and booker because gra- uh chuck grassley the chairman of the uh senate judiciary committee and cory booker kind of got into this i uh, since and, and most of these documents too that were marked me confidential were from the executive branch so it mm-hmm. seems like i could be wrong um but i believe the process was that the white house would request certain documents be kept confidential because they were like legal advice to the president is Mm. how I believe it would be, which would fall under the uh, usual confidentiality requirements of uh, lawyers. And then the chair, the uh, chair would, you know, try to follow that. And I'm pretty sure would follow that. And then 
uh, Booker would have to request that Chuck Grassley ask the White House to release the confidentiality of it, and then Grassley would have to go over to the White House and say, hey, can we release this? And then they'd say yes or no. Um, uh, one, one of the things that's really important uh, about this and why like Booker did this the way that he did was because... Uh, a lot of those documents were the ones they, they got the night before the hearing started and to actually like successfully go through the proper process, the hearings would be over. <laughs> like by the time mm-hmm. you actually dig it and there were so many documents that they had marked confidential for basically no reason. Uh, so on, on that, on that front, I think that, uh, really, uh, advocates for Booker's position on this is that they were, you know, use, you know, it, it, it's in the sense that when, People are using the system to abuse the system. Sometimes you have to, to push back in the in the same way. And so I was happy to uh, see see Booker uh, fight on that. I know one of the other things we wanted to discuss was uh, what Kamala Harris was up to. Uh, I I have strong thoughts on this. Uh, well, so, hang on. Before we get yeah. to Kamala Harris, can I ask an extension of Tori's question, which is, are there... It, it seemed to me that there were really no repercussions in place if he did share that confidential information. I was debating this with a friend of mine earlier in the week. Um, am I wrong about that? Was it just kind of a suggestion like, hey, we don't share this, but like we're not really going to be able to do anything to you if we do? I mean, if he you was do. threatened by one of the other people on the committee who like read, you know, John like, Cornyn. Yeah. yeah, John Cornyn, <laughs> the senator from my home state. But he, uh, yeah, he read aloud like the rules of the Senate and it said we can eject you from the Senate for doing this. And then to, to which like Cory Booker responded, bring it, which immediately started trending on Twitter. Because um, <laughs> well, it, it requires a two thirds vote of the Senate to yeah. eject yeah. Booker and yeah, Democrats are not going to bail on him on so that. So probably on a practical, especially when Hirono was like, yeah, you're going to have to eject me too then. I don't think on a practical level there can really be repercussions. Gotcha. That's yeah. what I that's what I thought and that's what we were discussing, but I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing a piece there. Well, and I know McConnell overhung an ethics investigation over the head of Cory Booker, but I don't politically that doesn't really seem to make sense to me because it makes it gives every opportunity for Cory Booker to point back to this time that he stood up to Chuck Grassley and the Senate Judiciary Committee to, uh, you know, uncover these terrible things about Brett Kavanaugh and, and those 2020 presidential ads just write themselves. So I think there are political limits to how much they would pursue a punishment of Booker on that. Yeah, let's get into Kamala Harris. Um, there's there's two things on uh, Kamala Harris that I'd like to to point out. The first was uh, she kind of got her 2020 shots in by asking Brett Kavanaugh um, if there were any laws that regulated the bodies of men. Let's play a little bit of that exchange. Can you think of any laws that give government the power to make decisions about uh, the male body? Um. I'm happy to answer a more specific question. Male versus female. There are um, medical procedures. Okay. That the government that the government has the power to make a decision about a man's oh, body. I thought you were asking about medical procedures no, that are I, unique to I, men. I can. I, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the question. Can you think of any laws that give the government the power to make decisions about the male body? I'm not a I'm not a thinking of any right now, Senator. 
so yeah, that was Harris and Kavanaugh's exchange. And then the other notable thing that that Harris did, she asked Brett Kavanaugh if he had had inappropriate conversations about the Mueller investigation with people employed by the law firm run by President Trump's personal attorney. Um, that was a somewhat confusing exchange at first because Kavanaugh seemed to be you know, casting about for someone specific that that Harris might have had in mind. Um, it was kind of unclear what the actual outcome of that exchange was. Eventually, the next day, Kavanaugh said no, he had not had these conversations that Harris alleged that he may have had. Uh, but we haven't seen any evidence on that to go one way or the other to make this more of an issue. Um, but what did y'all make uh, to, to wrap up this discussion on Kavanaugh? What did y'all make of, of Harris's moves and the political implications? So my, my thoughts on that was this was Kamala Harris reminding all of us that she started her career as a prosecutor, uh, because that just seemed like someone cross examining uh, a witness. And uh, from what I've been able to gather online is that she seemed to have credible, uh, credible, credible evidence that there had been some discussion that had happened and she was trying to ask him about it to see what he would say. And I mean, to me, that was one of the moments where he seemed the most like unprepared and most just like wet floppy sweat you know, going on on his face because he just seemed completely uh, surprised by the question, which to me, like, makes me think there could be the totally innocent explanation that he's just like, where is this going? Like, what? Like, what is she talking about? Because I have no idea and I haven't done this. Or because he totally did and he went, you know, was worried that she had something on, on him that he thought he had kept secret. Uh, I don't know what the answer is, and, and we don't know either. Um, you know, as you mentioned, on, thurs on Thursday, um, Senator Harris asked the question again, and he just very plainly and flatly said no. But it will, I think, be very important if it turns out he did have an improper conversation, because if that is revealed, then he definitely just lied before the Senate, and I think that would be a pretty strong argument to not confirm him. So, if, well, uh, and he's if already we, been accused of that. Yeah, but that would be you know this would be unquestionable. Whereas and the Colin other one, said, yeah, Colin said specifically that if he lies on during the hearing then that would be a no vote for her i mean it depends on if she'll actually go through with that like how blatant the lie was and like what it was about but yeah she mentioned something about that earlier susan yeah. collinson mm -hmm. okay yeah yeah so that i think that is something to to watch for i think that's where the the real repercussions could come from uh that <laughs> or it was just a brilliant red herring and she had no follow-up <laughs> it was just yeah, really either, random either way <laughs> uh, i mean e either either way it um it very very firmly um shows why there's a lot of people that are excited about her because she's you know clearly smart and focused and uh won't won't back down so I, I I appreciated the exchange. I feel like one of the things that it brought up was the concern of Kavanaugh just indiscriminately talking to inappropriate people to a point where he couldn't even remember who he said what to. Oh, that's interesting. Um, a, it makes him a bad liar if he is lying. And B, it it you know it brings a lot of things into concern. Like I bet you anything after he left um, the Senate that day, he was like, "All right, let me Google that law firm and see who all is you know on that firm that I know." And then like, oh, okay, good. I don't think I talked to any of these people. 
So, you know, it's just, it's a little concerning. All right. So let's wrap with this um, and let's go around the table. Do any of you think that these hearings produced any roadblocks to Kavanaugh getting confirmed by the Senate? I don't know. I actually like Kavanaugh's popularity went down during the hearings based on like some initial polling they've done. And it seems like there has been more of public outcry. So I'm I'm not sure. I But the two people who it really matters for are Murkowski and Collins, and they've still been pretty radio silent. So I guess we'll see. I don't think anything that came from the hearings will make a difference. But if something happens that causes Kavanaugh to uh, have to withdraw his nomination or get voted down, it probably uh, the seeds of it were planted during the hearings. I think that he probably will get confirmed if I'm just going to take my cynical role that I usually have for a bit. You know, in this, from what I've seen with the Trump presidency and all that sort of thing, there's not a whole lot that the Dems have been able to actually do. They've been able to introduce a lot of doubt and start kind of a rally. But then when it comes to actually being successful, it'll be really close. I really hope I'm pleasantly surprised. But again, I'm going to be a cynic and say no. Yeah, I think he's going to sail to confirmation um, and be on that court in time for the beginning of the October term. All right, well, let's move on to our final two topics of the week. We're going to kind of switch it up in the middle here and talk about Barack Obama's return to the campaign trail first. Um, So Barack Obama uh, gave a speech at the University of Illinois, where he gave his sharpest criticisms of President Trump uh, since the election. And he also really implored young voters to not uh, become uh, disenchanted with politics and and really criticized them for for their surprise that uh, despite the fact that only one in five of them voted in the 2014 midterms, um, they're surprised that Congress is a Congress that does not reflect their values. Um, he is stepping out in a way that his predecessors uh, did not in terms of speaking out politically, particularly in the next election after the one in which he left office. Um, so do y'all think that he is out of bounds to be campaigning in this moment? Or do we even care about norms anymore? I don't care about norms personally. This is a different <laughs> political climate than I've ever experienced. I was about to say, aren't we well beyond norms? Like, do we even have to discuss, like, especially that seems like a pretty small infraction if we're looking at the grand scheme of things. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So I just, you know, at this point, I'm happy to hear his voice. I miss him. If I'm, you know, if I'm just going to be really sentimental about it. I miss him too. (laughs) So I, yeah. He's like the old boyfriend, the one who got away and you're like, I hope you're happy, but I miss you. Right. I hope you're skiing every day. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so it was great to hear him kind of call everyone out. And I, I don't know that that we were, you know, I mean, I guess I'm just speaking for myself. I'm pretty aware. Like, I don't really know that anyone was surprised that without the vote, we or without a lot of people voting, the our representation doesn't match what we want. Like, that's, you know, I don't know that that was really something that he was addressing or if it was just kind of a ploy to bring the point home. But yeah, like, I'm really glad he called people out on not voting because I can't tell you how many people I've had this conversation with the past two years. Well, my vote doesn't matter anyway. I'm like, you asshat. It absolutely <laughs> matters. Georgia was almost a purple state for a bit. Like, you know, anyway, I, I like Obama. I'm glad he's talking. Luke, what did you think of the president's, or the former president's speech? I think it was really good because one of the problems that we've had is a loss of uh, statesman characters. That was 
really reminded uh, to me about by watching um, John McCain's funeral in that there are very few people currently in American politics who rise above the partisan fray and sort of are just people that everyone respects. I think John McCain, for a lot of people, was was that person, one of those people, uh, where a lot of Democrats um, could respect him a lot, despite not uh, agreeing with all of his political beliefs. And even to some extent, um, George W. Bush and his remarks was very nonpartisan and you know struck an appropriate tone at uh, the memorial service uh, for, for McCain. And so... A lot of what uh, I heard from Obama's speech was stuff that I, I've been wanting to hear from other people on on both sides of just, you know, the the line from his speech that really like hit a uh, chord with me was just like, what has happened to the Republican Party? Like, I feel like it's it's something that people have not been willing to say and that he actually sort of drew a long arc of history uh, during his speech, which Obama was always very good at doing and just talking about how the Republican Party had changed and expressing his you know disappointment that our political conversations have gotten so strange and just so out of whack and not even uh, divisive, but just like the, the, the bizarreness of it um, and how um, important it was for uh, people to, you know, stay involved and get involved and to focus on, um, you know, the future of the United States and how difficult that struggle is going to be. And as far as if, like, this is an appropriate time for him to come out, I, I it, former president's campaign, it's not that bizarre to have happen. We've been in this really weird era though whereas um you know ronald reagan passed away very and, and his health declined significantly right after his presidency george hw got beat and then uh bill clinton had the monica Lewinsky scandal and then george w bush ended on a really unpopular note so i say all that to say is like we haven't really had super popular presidents for the you know the past couple uh cycles that like would make sense to go back on the campaign trail um immediately and so obama really is just in a unique position and that he left him pretty popular and uh a lot of people are happy to see him and pretty much i think all of us were happy to hear him on the trail whereas a lot of people were uh had some real clinton fatigue around 2002 and um wouldn't have really wanted to see bill clinton and so you know uh, and we really don't have anyone else in the party right now that could play this unifying role. And I, honestly, I kind of like having him in this role for the specific reason that he can't be president again and that he can sort of just serve as like a elder statesman, just encouraging the troops to, you know, pay attention and stay involved. And uh, he isn't doing it really for himself, in, in my opinion, and that he's, he's kind of... Uh, being able to serve in a, a role of just, you know, providing a voice when we're still trying to figure out where we are. To bring this home to Georgia, does Stacey Abrams want Barack Obama on the campaign trail with her this fall? I, I would say so, just because the coalition of people that Stacey Abrams needs to get to win Georgia is the exact coalition that Barack Obama built. Because Obama was really successful in his campaigns because he was able to raise African-American turnout and get young people to vote in larger numbers than 
they had before. Uh, you know, the president uh, did not win Georgia, uh, but he uh, built a similar coalition to what you would need in Georgia. So in that sense, as far as exciting the voters that Abrams needs to excite, I, I believe that Barack Obama is a, a good messenger for that. I 100% agree, Luke. I think that absolutely uh, Obama's very energizing. Like I said previously, we miss him. So heck yeah, I'd pay attention if she if he was with her. I mean, I'm already paying attention, let's be real. But if I weren't, I'd be excited. Well, and, I mean, I'm working on Gillum's campaign right now, and I know that it, there's been articles saying like you shouldn't compare Abrams to Gillum because they're in very different political climates. But one thing that we're focusing on is like we're in Andrew Gillum is running for governor of Florida for those who haven't been following in, in down the rabbit hole of politics as deep as some of us. Um, but um, we're actually just trying solely to stoke his base. Like, I think he can appeal to moderates, but that's not who we're going after. We're like, let's excite people on the left, left of left. And I think that's actually a good strategy for these candidates that um, are coming out and they are like progressive champions is to get Obama because progressives love Obama. All right, so let's wrap with a brief discussion of the, on the news that rocked Washington last week. I'm sure that you've already heard about this by now, but last week the New York Times published an anonymous op-ed from a senior administration official in the White House. Um, the op-ed laid out the argument for how reckless Donald Trump is, for how little interest he has in learning and improving on the job, and cited at least one instance where uh, advisors to the president have worked to thwart the president's agenda and to stop the worst of his impulses. Um, what? W- let's start with this question. What do what is your view of the author of this op-ed? Do you think that they're doing something noble by putting this message into the New York Times, or or is there a problem with their anonymity in this? I'm gonna go first, just because I have to disappear in a second. Uh, so this is probably gonna be my only answer, and then I have to go. So, but then you have to tell us who you think it is. <sighs> okay. I'll, well, I'll start with who I think it is. I think it is nobody that whose name we actually know. I bet it is some deputy of chief of staff, some deputy of some cabinet official. This is not someone we know, I don't think. Um, that being said, there is only one proper response to Donald Trump if everything you said in this is true, and that is to go in front of the camera, say, hi, my name is blank. I am the blank for the president of the United States. I have witnessed him. He is incapable of being president. And for that reason, I resign because I asked these specific people if they would help me to uh, proceed with the 25th Amendment or hand over the proper documentation or testify before Congress to the state of the president to either have him removed uh, through the Constitution or have him removed uh, through impeachment and they did not do so. And so I am resigning and everyone in mass do that until enough people do it, that people understand that Donald Trump is not capable of holding this position because the government does not work. If the president cannot rely on his, if he cannot rely on his subordinates to carry out his agenda. The founders were like quite clear that they did not want impeachment to be used to handle like incompetency and want, and to handle like policy disagreements and that it had to be high crimes or misdemeanors. It's quite clear that 
through a lot of stuff that Trump has been doing, especially uh, his constant harassment of Jeff Sessions, that he has probably passed the bar of uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. But on the incompetency question, the 25th Amendment is there. Like, it is there, and it could handle it, uh, which would allow the cabinet to vote to remove Trump. If this is true, and if it is so obvious that basically every single book that has come out about Donald Trump has uh, highlighted the ways that he is incompetent and bad at the job, and not just bad at the job, but like dangerously unqualified for it to the point where people feel like they have to remove papers from his desk, and that, uh, as I think the author of the Times piece put it, that the um, you know the good things that have happened in the administration are in spite of him rather because of him. If that's the case, then there is no excuse for anyone to remain in this administration or to remain a supporter of this administration. And uh, th this this op-ed did nothing and is basically, uh, in my opinion, someone trying to prepare for their book tour and, uh, you know, cash in on being a member of this administration, uh, which I am uh, really, really sad to see. Uh, the last thing I will say is I think David Frum, a uh, conservative columnist, had a really good article in response to this article, which is like, this is a constitutional crisis. Like, people constantly use that phrase, but like, this is an example of one because there are lots of constitutional ways that I laid out to handle a president in this way, but a unconstitutional way, I would think, is to subvert his orders and to subvert him in this way. And that, like, if you know, uh, a fellow podcaster, John Favreau had done something like this. People would have freaked out. Or if, uh, Ben Rhodes had didn't, didn't want Obama to sign the Paris climate accord. So he took it off his desk. Like that would be an insane scandal that people would really, really talk about a lot, but because it's this president and because it's, uh, probably stopping things that the majority of Americans want to see stopped, we're letting it, uh, happen. And, on on that note, I I just think this is this is stupid and bad, and uh, I I can think of no other better sign off for me than accusing someone else of stupidity. Uh, so good goodbye, and uh, have fun talking about this topic without me. So to continue on what Luke said, I believe it was actually President Obama, since we we're talking about him a good bit this episode. Um, he said that it's completely inappropriate i don't remember the exact words he used so this is going to be highly paraphrased but it was it's very inappropriate for someone on the president's staff to essentially be removing things from his desk or not following orders or just not doing their job basically it's it creates a terrible precedent it creates a really hostile work environment which i'm sure that environment is already hostile enough but it's just it's just inappropriate. And so I do think that publishing it anonymous, anonymously is an act of it's it's a two it's a I have two feelings about it. I believe that it is an act of cowardice, but I also believe that it's useful to us to know that like, hey, you're not wrong, your perception's not wrong. Like, yeah, the dude's absolutely nuts. Somebody needs to take his cell phone away. But but we knew that. Like, all this is is just like, okay, yeah, we're right about him from somebody on the inside. Isn't it nice to get that confirmation on some level, though? I mean, yes. It, I, I don't think anyone was particularly shocked by it. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm in minor, like, minority here, I think. But I, like, really enjoyed the op-ed. I thought it was really brave for him to come out and do that. Um, whoever it was, or he or she, um, 
I don't know. I I have a theory that it's General Kelly, but that's like because he mentioned defense specifically. Um, and Kelly's kind of been quoted in other places or allegedly Kelly's like spoken out in private against Donald Trump. It's just never been proven. And um, but who knows, man? And like if he has to be anonymous, I, I think it just I see why he chose to be anonymous. I see why he also chose to speak out. I think Luke mentioned like, yeah, like this guy's going to have a great book tour one day. And it could be so cynical that he just sees that Trump really has potential to go down, especially if like the House and Senate turn. And he wants to be able to take a step back and be like, I'm actually the one who wrote the op-ed. I've been against him this whole time. Um, But I also think on some level, when your president is that much of a dumpster fire maybe the american people have a right to know and even if like this person does believe that they're doing more good on the inside than out which i don't think like what you were saying like i think you know that's a pretty big sacrifice and like at what cost are you selling your soul to like get a few policies um but i think he did the right thing by letting the american people know like no it actually is exactly as bad as you think i know because i work with him um i think this was a good win for the left. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Kyle? Yeah. So so the thing that I thought strategically why this seems like a bad move by whoever this writer was is they are describing what has been described by people outside of the White House or, or people like Amorosa who have left the White House, that the staff is actively working to undermine the president. And this seems to to play into the conspiracy theory fears about the deep state that the president has. And if you're successful in thwarting some of his worst decisions right now, and then you give away the game in a anonymous New York Times op-ed, now anytime any staff member in the White House disagrees with the president, I think he's going to have this second thought of, was it you that wrote the op-ed? And so that's where I don't really understand the strategic value of this. And Republicans on the Hill kind of made the same point that, Even Republicans on the Hill understand that it's a dumpster fire. Last year, Bob Corker called it an adult daycare center. Um, (laughs) But so but Republicans at least seem to be willing to live with that. And and for the for the goals that this author talks about in the op ed, for the things that Republicans are touting on the campaign trail this fall, they seem willing to live with the absolute mess that is the Oval Office. Um, But in terms of like being successful in reining him in, this doesn't seem to serve that goal to me. Unless it's just that much of a mess that he really thinks that he can write this and then it still won't make much of a difference because Trump really is that incompetent that he can't really, he doesn't have a choice. Um, I don't know. Who knows? It, it was a really risky move by New York times to publish is a risky move for whoever chose to write that. Um, I quite enjoyed it on the outside. That is true. I did enjoy reading it. And I enjoyed the Q&A article that the New York Times also posted on that. Just some of the, the questions that they got were pretty pretty good and really entertaining answers for some of them. And the Daily did a podcast with a, a person who um, made the decision to publish the op-ed. And I was just really impressed with like how they handled it. They really made sure that that person was legitimate. You know, they like really debated whether or not it was okay to publish an anonymous op-ed of this magnitude. Um, and I was I was actually impressed with them all the way around. And I think they made the right this decision. So wait, did we say who we think it is? I I, I said I think it's Kelly. Um, I although I think Luke's point is interesting that it's somebody that 
we've never heard of before. I've also heard Mike Pence because... So that's actually who I think it is. <laughs> really? Um, I think it's so... I. Obviously, I like have read up on this a lot. And so one of the analysis articles was just based on word choice and some word patterns. Um, and so they said that it either intentionally mimicked Pence for, to, um, you know, hide who it is or it was him. And honestly, like I'm actually more afraid of Pence as president than I am of Trump as president just because I actually do think he can get stuff done. And so I just kind of wonder if he's found a way to actually get decent stuff done and get us through this presidency and maybe who knows maybe the grand scheme of things is he's gonna run you know i because you can run for president if you've been vice president right he's just yeah but he's just not very popular well no he's not popular he's an asshole um i'm not afraid of pence because he doesn't have a cult following the way trump does so i i don't know i feel like no i think if if you're pence and you are starting to believe that Republicans are never going to push back on the president in a way that would elevate Pence to the presidency, then you may have to sort of give him a shove out the door by doing something like this. And so I I think that could be some underlying reason for Pence. I kind of doubt that it's him. Um, I think, or if you're somebody like Pence, who's opportunistic, and you really think that, okay, there is a chance he's going to get impeached or there is a chance that, you know, like he's going to go down in some way or even just like go down in history as a really horrible president. Like there's about to be a giant blue wave and, you know, then this is a way to separate himself. And that makes sense for Pence. But I, I don't know. I also think that that's pretty freaking risky on Pence's part. Oh, well, for I think sure. Impeachment, I think impeachment helps Pence. I think the worst outcome for Pence is for the Republicans to have a terrible midterm and be so unpopular, such a toxic brand that Trump basically cannot win re-election. Whereas Pence, if he was to be elevated to the presidency by impeachment before the 2020 election, he could campaign on, you know, the mess is already gone because Trump is gone. But you've got these radical Democrats over here that are going to do all these terrible things. And so stick with the sure, the sure-footed economic success of the Pence administration, and we've cleared out the disaster that is Trump. Right. Well, and if he comes out as the writer of the article, he can also add, I helped get rid of him, you know, and like, I was the real reason why all these policies went through, like, look at, you know, what I did. Yeah. Or I don't know, maybe it's somebody who really does see themselves as a hero. Who knows? Like, who do you think it is, Kyle? I, I think it's some, some, unnamed or some name that we don't know um i think it's easy way out right you and luke (laughs) (laughs) well just because i don't know it seems too too high it's like high risk high reward if it's pence because if he gets caught trying to push the president out the door then he's going to completely undermine his support among trump's voters because he'll be seen as a traitor to president trump and then there is no electoral coalition for pence in that instance so he may push him out the door and get elevated or he may get caught doing it and be branded as a traitor. Um, I don't think anybody from the national security establishment would actually write this, mostly because it also points to some of the economic policies championed by Republicans. It talks about free minds and free markets. That's um, actually why I didn't think it was Pence, because I felt like if he was the one who wrote it, he would have talked more about family. And, um, you know, he seems like more of like the religious side of things. This focus more on like taxes and defense. 
And so I thought that was really interesting. There's a really weird thing about like evangelicals and the religious interplay into this, that there's a strand of, I think, evangelical Christianity. Don't quote me on this if I get this not exactly right. But um, that sort of see Trump as this almost biblical figure because of how persecuted he is and how hated he is and how despite what you would normally think as like Christian objections to like serial womanizer, multiple divorcee, that actually Trump is this like imperfect savior because of how persecuted and hated he is and he's the perfect vessel for for this movement it's i wish i could put megan's face on the podcast right now yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a weird it's a weird thing he's like jesus (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i don't know i i think it's less likely to be somebody we haven't heard of um but i don't know do do we have any final thoughts on how this politically impacts trump this this seems to me as something that may could actually backfire and help him at least in getting his followers to believe that there is this conspiracy to thwart him and and the trump movement but but where do y'all think this leaves him politically as we head close to the midterms well i think it's one of the things that i've i've talked about previously if someone starts to gang up on trump i think that his kind of go-to defense is well i'm the only president that this has ever happened to you know not not necessarily being truthful but like you know from a theatrical standpoint um he's definitely talked about how people are against him and ganging up on him and those sorts of things and so that i think he will play that up i think that it's gonna become a trump pity party in a like why are you guys doing this to me this is so unfair i'm the political outsider this isn't my fault or like you know whatever um so i think that we could see that but as far as where this leaves him politically in this exact moment if all it does is gets talked about in the new york times um mm, you know whatever but i i also think okay because you're right i think his base will see it that way i think there's a feeling of kind of desperation on the left right now, though, that it's like we have to stop Trump. And I think Democrats are kind of instead of kind of trying to expand and become more moderate, I think they're really leaning into their base. And I think this kind of feeds into that narrative of like, guys, it's desperate. You have to go vote in the midterms. Like we have to vote for extra progressive candidates and we have to like go outside the norm because like we're not in normal times. And so I think, um, yeah, even if it helps him with his base, I think it could potentially help Democrats in the midterms, but we'll see. All right. Well, I think we will wrap it there for the week. Uh, Just a really unique moment in Washington right now, given the Supreme Court hearings, the insurrection within Trump's own staff as he tries to put someone on the court for life, um, and the reemergence of Barack Obama into this environment. It is going to be, I think, a wild next couple of months. Um, But with that, I think we are going to leave that there, and we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye, friends. Wait, we didn't do a sign-off. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend, and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.